the Wildlife Observer Network. Okay, man, we're recording again. All right, so Tony had to go do some dad stuff. So, um, yeah, I wanted to keep picking your brain. We got a few minutes left here. Um, so, yeah, you were you were saying you wanted to see the Wetmore Thraupus. Yes. And I wanted to know. I was I was out with my friend Liam today. Where you know it's the doldrums of summer here. It's like. It is a, it, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's actually not that much worse or even conceivably better and weather-wise um, in Louisiana than it is in Philly right now. Yeah, it's about the same, I think. Yeah, yeah. this morning, this morning it was, uh, I, I suspect it was about mid-80s, but with 90% humidity. Yeah, that's, we're, we're, I think we're a little hotter than that, but probably a little lower on the humidity front, but the combo yeah. is probably still pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty cheerful, shall we say? Yeah, basically midday here. There's just no point in leaving the house. Yeah, exactly. So I, I got up at dawn this morning, and which here, you know, right now sun's rising. I think just before six a.m. So in order to get in position, you know, you're up at at five or so. Hit the snooze button once or twice. Make your coffee. You know, if you're lucky, girlfriends made you a nice breakfast biscuit sandwich, and. <laughs> Uh, off into the the uh, the wilds of the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge here in Philly. How'd that go? What'd you see? We saw we had sixty species almost, which is you know it was it was a three hour tromp, mm-hmm. uh, and um, it was pleasant. It was nice, but you know it is the doldrums of summer. So, but one thing we we did see you know it's late July here. We did see some birds, sort of like you mentioned earlier. It's late July here too, you know. Yeah, oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Time zones only one hour difference. Yeah, how about that? So yeah, we saw like you know yellow warblers breed commonly at Heinz, but um, we saw some today that were kind of acting like they might be migrants, like they're kind of buzzing around all over the place, not acting territorial at all. And then you know we see we see things that don't nest there that we haven't seen in months, like, you know, belted kingfishers all of a sudden show up, um, you know, influx of uh, yellow warblers and more obvious migrants like lesser yellow legs and, and solitary sandpiper. Um, but we got to talking about post breeding dispersal, mm. right? And what the hell is that? Right. It, I, I'm guessing it's like a number of different mechanisms that, are at work, but it, for folks that aren't familiar with the term, very often this time of year, you'll see birds that obviously didn't breed in the area. Um, they'll just sort of suddenly show up yeah. and people will say, well, what are they doing? Are they migrating? Or are they, did they actually nest nearby? And you'll hear people say, well, it's some, it's something, some form of post-breeding dispersal. Yeah. And I, w- I was like, that'd be a good question for Dan. Like, <laughs> Is, well, is there I, any way I, to summarize post I may disappoint, but um, that's, that's not something I guess I'm all that knowledgeable on, but I can at least make some educated guesses, I would say. Yeah, I feel like nobody's really that knowledgeable because I think it's, as we were saying, I think it's probably like a bunch of different... Yeah, it's, it's probably a multiple, you know, multiple different things kind of happening that can all be kind of categorized as post-breeding dispersal. And I think... Uh, there's, there's a couple of different cases. Like, so as I think I mentioned earlier, 
we actually had a yellow warbler here th this morning and they don't nest any nearer than like Missouri, I think. So that clearly was a migrant. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say if we're getting them here, you must be getting them up there already. Right. And my, I, what I don't know is would those be birds that had bred on the Southern edge of the range where you would expect young to be fledged earlier? Or are those birds that are coming all the way from, you know, Northern Canada where they have to breed really quickly? Um, Right. I'm not really, not really sure which of those two uh, scenarios is most likely, but um, one thing that we see a lot of here in Louisiana in mid to late summer is what I think is very clearly post-breeding dispersal of waders, like wood storks and herons and ibis and things. They're, they breed, like wood storks, the nearest breeding colony of wood storks, I think, is in Veracruz or the Yucatan of Mexico. Oh, wow. And, and like the, the ones in Florida are a very small population by comparison, but we get hundreds of them here on the North Gulf Coast during late summer through about November. And these are birds that are coming around through Texas and they're basically, they've finished breeding. So that constraint on their time and the, the distance that they have to travel to feed young has been released. And so they are moving uh, to take advantage of the um you know the the ebbs and flows of the mississippi valley drainage mm -hmm. and the wetlands that it feeds uh which must just be absolutely packed with lots of of organisms for them to eat and so a lot of these big wading bird colonies once they're done breeding which down here is like may they're they start in march they're usually done by may wow so you'll have this huge bloom of of adults and young ibis and herons and wood storks and all sorts of things that will just be coming up from Mexico through Texas and into Louisiana. Some may go as far east as Florida and no doubt some of them will disperse even farther north and may explain some of these weird things that show up in, you know, Nebraska and, and yeah. Illinois and New Jersey. Even. Yeah, couple, some, some years we have wood storks here in Pennsylvania even. Yeah. New Jersey. yeah so, so no doubt that they're, they're probably birds coming from Mexico most likely. Wow. And um, so these are birds that are probably just taking advantage of, of food resources that, that they, they can't reach from their nesting colonies because of the restriction of distance that they need to, you know, they need to get back to their young before they starve to death, obviously. So once those colonies are done nesting, then they've got the, the, the luxury of time and space to just sort of search for um, gluts of food, which is... Right. And they, they need to recover from breeding, I'm sure, to some degree right. as well, yeah, which is an incredibly taxing process. Build they need to build some fat. Exactly, you know, and sort of self-maintenance and so on. And the young, too. And, and I think, so a second version of post-breeding dispersal is, uh, you know, so you've, you suddenly have this, um, you know, new population of birds. Almost every species is going to basically double its size after the, the breeding season if not more in some cases. And uh, so these young birds are going to have to move around trying to find food because they, they sometimes the parents are going to re-nest so they can't stick around the parents' territory. Uh, and most of the available territories are going to be occupied by breeding birds. So a lot of these young are just looking for some place where they can forage enough to build up their own fat reserves for whatever migration they're going to have to do. So sometimes they get pushed out to sort of the 
right the, the margins the margins exactly of their species core range uh, sometimes into areas where they're not usually expected to be uh, for example today uh, i think I, I mentioned too we had a a female and a first year uh, perula i mean this first year bird was still had some fuzzy down on it and so on wow so um, and those birds, as far as I know, don't nest in town, or at least not anywhere I'm familiar with around where we had it. So they probably must have moved at least a couple of miles, if not more, right, to show up on the shore of University Lake there. So that's sort of a secondary kind of, of uh, post-breeding dispersal. And I guess the adults, too, might, you know, they might get sick of their territories after spending a month, you know, feeding baby birds and and they got to molt. They got to replace all those feathers. Right. As well, they probably need to. They may need to find some place other than where they were breeding to do that. Perhaps. Right. Yeah. So they they have uh, and and you know molting. I don't know if people realize that. Of course, raising young is very energetically costly. I think any parent will recognize that. But molting is also an energetically costly thing to do, and uh, so it's really important that you find a really rich source of food to keep your body, you know, uh, fed effectively yeah. so that you can produce feathers and, and so on. It's, it's something that often oh. there are studies that basically show that, um, most birds don't molt until after they're done raising their young because right. they just simply can't compound the amount of energy necessary to do both simultaneously. Right. And, and even to add to that, off, not always, but often migration it's, is, is yet another right. discrete activity that's for so many of our birds, there is, there's migration, there's breeding, and then there's molt, and then often there's migration again. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in reality, these birds are living on pretty tight schedules. Um, and so post-breeding dispersal for adult birds, and for that matter, for young birds that have just, you know, jumped out of the nest, uh, they've got a sort of a small window when they can really uh, forage and just pack themselves with, with as much energy as they can as they're building up to their pending fall migration when they have to head south again. And, yeah. you know, and some yeah. of these birds are going to do marathon flights. I mean, and we're starting now to understand just how much more is involved in some of this. I mean, I, I think most people have always assumed that these birds are just flying, you know, overnight, maybe most, most North American passerines are, are nocturnal migrants. So they, they fly overnight, then they land in the first thing in the morning, they forage, and then they fly the next night, etc. But it turns out that what most birds actually may be doing is these species have staging sites that are, that are fairly small patches. And so they, they, you know, for example, um, Let's see, what would be a good example? Uh, well, let's say black pole warblers, right? So let's say a black pole warbler is a bird that's been nesting in Nome, Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just raised its young. They probably don't have enough time to have more than one brood. So the adults have just raised their young. The young have fledged. The adult has then uh, built up enough energy to then fly effectively southeast across Canada to the Atlantic seaboard of the United States, to mm -hmm. the mid-Atlantic region. Yeah. Probably done a couple of stops along the way, um, depending on how much insects it can find at any given stop. But it gets to the Atlantic seaboard, and it spends probably around four to five days, if it's lucky, 
to build up massive fat reserves. Uh, it may take more, it may take like a week and a half sometimes. Um, and then from there, it's gonna fly over water from the mid-Atlantic all the way to Northern South America, non Over the Atlantic Ocean, over the Caribbean, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. It basically flies southeast off the coast of sort of the mid-Atlantic, and then it hits the trade winds, and the trade winds will provide a tailwind that actually pushes it down to the coast of the Guianas and Venezuela. And that way it's not burning as many calories as it, as it would be if it went straight south, where it's kind of fighting the winds. Right. And so that way it actually saves some energy. As long as it doesn't hit a storm, it should be able to just coast right into Venezuela. It probably stages somewhere around the coast of, the, of Venezuela, and then it might do a second flight down to, let's say, you know, the northern Amazon. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this, so these birds are, are staging um, in only a few places. And so having that small window post-breeding to, to search for, um, you know. Caterpillars and inchworms. And- yeah, it, it probably is a really important short period where they, they, they're sort of maybe a little bit more relaxed than most other parts of their lives. But also where they're they're just they're sort of planning their stocking for their first of the of their flights. Yeah, you know, I found uh, and we need, we should wrap up here soon. But I uh, last, I guess it was two summers ago. It was right around now, maybe a little bit. Now it was later. It was like late August. But I found a, um, a little flock of bobolinks at Bombay Hook National Wildlife Refuge. Took some photos. Later realized that one was color banded. Um, and a friend of mine, Nathaniel Sharp. Uh, up in New England, originally from around here, he, he was looking at the photos. He was like, hey, I think I might know who banded that. He put me in touch with uh, somebody who uh, I sent them the photos. And they're like, yeah, the funny thing is I banded that, those, that bird, uh, I think he said three years ago and had not seen it. At all. I had no idea what had happened to it until about three weeks ago. Somebody photographed it at the same exact spot where you just photographed it. Oh, wow. So, so, so it had been there three weeks. Yeah, it had been wow. there three weeks. And, you know, of course, bobolink is one of the few few North American birds that does a complete molt twice a year, replaces right. all of its feathers. So they probably need a little bit longer. Later that same year, I had, a, I had like a pair of dick sissels hanging out in September in one site for about the same amount of time. And I was like, I wonder if they're doing the same thing. They just, you know, doing the same thing. They're just building fat, hanging out until – you know, either the weather or, or the fat gets where they need it, and then and then they go. Uh, and of course, both of those birds also winter in South America. I mean, bobolinks go all the way to Argentina. So yeah, these are birds that are doing some incredible flights. Yeah, and tiny songbirds birds together. Tiny songbirds taking incredible journeys. Yeah. It's, well, maybe we should leave it there, Dan. I want to say. Uh, Let's uh, let's uh, let's break with that after uh, and think about what these songbirds do. It really is incredible, not only migrating at night a lot of them, but but covering oceans. And I think that's uh, a, an inspirational thing to think about, especially during a difficult time right now. When we can't do the same, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're grounded. Dan and I both being uh, in the in the bird tour business and unable to go anywhere for quite some time. So hopefully that will. That will change uh, for a whole variety of reasons. But one, I want to say thanks, Dan, for for joining uh, Birding Today podcast and the uh, Life Observer Network. It was a pleasure to have you. And uh, we'll have you back someday. we got a lot to talk about. 
All right. Well, good talking to you and, uh, and uh, good birding to everyone out there. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening and, and tune in again in a couple of weeks. We'll be back with another birding today. Have a good one.